Welcome to the OnScript podcast, your home for world-class conversations on scripture and theology, where you get to meet some of the best in the field. Visit us at onscript.study. Say hello on Twitter at OnScript Podcast and stop by our Facebook page at facebook.com slash OnScript. Hey everyone, welcome back to the OnScript Podcast. This is Matt Lynch coming to you from Regent College in Vancouver. In this episode, I get to speak with my friend and former colleague, Reed Carlson, about his book, Unfamiliar Selves, in the Hebrew Bible, and I think you'll find it really interesting. Thanks so much to Ed Hackey for producing this show so faithfully week in and week out. Everything you listen to is dependent on Ed and benefits from his tireless help with this show. So thank you so much, Ed. And thanks to all of you who support the show monthly and or give one-off gifts. We, we really appreciate you. You can give by going to onscript.study forward slash donate. And without further ado, let's get on with the show. Enjoy. Hey, everyone. Our guest today is Reverend Dr. Reed Carlson, Assistant Professor of Biblical Studies at United Lutheran Seminary. He's active in the church, ordained in the Episcopal Church, and is married to an ELCA minister. Reed and I met while he was doing his doctorate at Harvard and was on a Fulbright in Göttingen, Germany, where I was also working. And we even went on a dig together at uh, Tel Bernah, uh, which was a lot of fun. Um, he's the author of the book we're discussing today, Unfamiliar Selves in the Hebrew Bible, Possession and Other Spirit Phenomena, public, uh, published by de Groyter in 2022, this year. So welcome to OnScript, Reed. It's great to be here, Matt. Yeah, thanks for joining. And um, I was wondering, just to kick off, if you could talk a little bit about your journey toward academic study of the Bible, um, and maybe some of the formative experiences along the way that led you in this direction. Sure. So probably like a lot of your listeners, my journey into studying the Bible is closely connected to my personal faith journey. You said in the bio that I am, today I'm uh, an ordained Episcopal priest, but I grew up a Pentecostal preacher's son. And I knew from a pretty young age that I was going to be headed towards ministry. I always enjoyed reading the Bible, especially the stories that's probably why I was drawn to the Old Testament, because there are so many interesting stories there. And like a lot of people, I experienced something of a faith crisis when I went to college. And this was a somewhat interesting situation because it was a faith-based college, a place where I was training to become a minister. And I found myself being out of sync with the tradition I'd grown up in, in a, a number of different ways. One of them was, we might say... Um, a streak of anti-intellectualism. And it's certainly not the case that all Pentecostals are anti-intellectual, but I think most people would agree, especially if you grew up in the tradition, that there is a streak of anti-intellectualism that can come out in the tradition. And so this was one of the places where I found myself out of sync as I got more and more interested in my studies. We can fast forward a few years, a bunch of stuff happened. I found myself in the Episcopal Church. I was eventually ordained. I started to feel at home there. And I started doing graduate work at Harvard in Hebrew Bible. And again, I started to find myself not quite a crisis this time, but again, this feeling of out of sync, being out of sync with my, with my church. This time, however, it wasn't anti-intellectualism. 
It was what we might call anti-spiritualism. And again, the disclaimer, it's not that all Episcopalians are anti-spiritual, and it's not only an Episcopal problem, but I found as I was worshiping in community and uh, doing ministry, I found that a lot of people were distrustful or uncomfortable with spiritual expressions of faith, not just charismatic stuff, but even just talking about the Holy Spirit and uh, even, even just kind of practical conversations about the history of the tradition. And this, these observations, I noticed, had bled over into some of the theologically inclined biblical studies that I was reading and encountering. And so this presented me with a kind of opportunity because not only did I feel my church was kind of out of sync with my background, uh, growing up Pentecostal, where people were quite comfortable with spiritual stuff, I also found that this attitude was actually out of sync with the current state of the study of religion. People who were studying religious phenomena all around the world, not necessarily people of faith themselves, uh, they weren't necessarily uncomfortable with these expressions of of religion in the same way that some of the you know people I w- I knew at church, and so this uh, I saw as an opportunity uh, to take some of this head on and lean on both my background and what I remembered of spiritual phenomena growing up and the training that I was getting in the study of religion. Yeah, that's a really helpful description of your journey. And um, yeah, there's a certain irony in in finding a greater um, appreciation for or sympathy with spirituality in the study of religion than in the church. <laughs> Absolutely, um, yeah. So it's a, it's, a, it's a real disconnect there. And, and of course, this leads into your current book, Unfamiliar Selves in the Hebrew Bible, which is uh, the subtitle "Possession and Other Spirit Phenomena" is it, was the topic kind of uh, an, an intentional effort to wrestle through these things, or is it like you found yourself drawn to these subjects and were like, "Oh my goodness, I'm I'm sort of bringing the two together here." It was quite a, a happy accidental intersection. Uh, I had gotten into the topic because I was interested in kind of Second Temple mythologies of demons and angels, and I kind of dabbled in the problem of evil for a while. And I found that um, this was really interesting work, and a lot of great stuff was already being done on it. And I and I had that kind of graduate school experience where every time you think you have a great idea, you find that somebody has already written a much better book on it. And, and so I knew I was interested in this material, and I came up upon this other angle of bringing in um, cultural anthropology and ethnography, uh, in part through um, uh, work looking at work that was being done in the New Testament on especially some of the uh, gospel stories, the gospel exorcism stories, but also part of Paul's letters. There were New Testament scholars who were quite readily and easily bringing in this other literature and finding some really, what I thought, uh, interesting stuff in in the Bible. And I thought, well, Maybe we can bring this back a little bit and look at pre-Christian material. Yeah. Um, one of the things I really appreciate about your book, as I said before we started recording, is is your ability to bring together biblical studies and cognate disciplines like anthropology and um, contemporary ethnographic studies. And, um, and, and I think there's a real sort of continuity of integration. Like the, the way you integrate reminds me of how 
uh, Carol Newsom brings together different disciplines in her work. And, and so I think having read your book now, when people tell me, if they tell me they like Carol Newsom's work, I'll say, oh, you have to read Reed Carlson then. Um, <laughs> well, there's, uh, there's no greater I, compliment than, than being mentioned <laughs> in the same thought as Carol Newsom. So thank you. Yeah, well, um, you know, you, you bring together a lot of like contemporary stories of um, like current phenomena or recent phenomena um, of w- whether it be spirit possession or even you start out the book talking about a crime and, and maybe we'll get to that in a moment. Um, but, but let's just step back for a moment and talk about some of the primary goals in your book, Unfamiliar Selves. So, so what are those? The kind of central research question, the, the, the hook, if you will, was answering the question, is there spirit possession and other similar phenomena in the Hebrew Bible? And I decided to focus on that canonical literature specifically, because uh, so often it, it, it has kind of achieved like a, a special status and people want to find, find ways that it's uh, maybe separate from Second Temple literature. Uh, and, or, and, and so this was literature that people cared about. There were a lot of people across the spectrum who were arguing that spirit stuff was not found in this literature, that that's a, you know, a later tradition or a Christian innovation or, you know, um, syncretism with, uh, you know, Hellenism or whatever. And, and I thought, uh, I thought, you know, I think that there is spirit phenomena here. It might not look like the kind of stereotype we have, or according to, it might not look like models that have been established by you know, Jesus is Jesus and the Gerasene demoniac or something like that. But I think it is here. And the way to recognize it is to look at some of the paradigms that uh, anthropologists and ethnographers use for thinking about spirit phenomena more broadly beyond just a very specific construction of spirit possession. Mm-hmm. And, and so um, as you as you looked at this subject of spirit possession and uh, obviously the the Hebrew term ruach, translated wind or breath or spirit, was central to your study. So what, what are some of the misunderstandings that scholars brought to this subject? Yeah, so one of the things I noticed in the secondary literature was that a lot of scholars would try to specify at the outset which one of those terms ruach meant in that setting. Should it be translated as wind? Should it be translated as spirit? Should it be translated as as breath? And one of the things I wanted to point out is that this may be a kind of distinction, a a cultural model to use um, some of the terminology that Carol Newsom uses, a cultural model that modern interpreters are operating with that weren't maybe there in in the ancient literature. And, And a great place where you see that at work, I think, is in Ezekiel 37 where the ruach quite intentionally can mean all of these things. And that's kind of part of the point in, is that it's using all of these understandings of it. And, and so they might be uh, penetrating each other in other texts as well. And, and so perhaps in our effort to get a more precise translation of the term, we might be bracketing off ideas that can be present. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm looking for the quote because I, I underlined it um in my, my notes, I can't find it right now, but you, you talk about how um, Ezekiel was, was uh, in the spirit and commanding spirits and 
and speaking to the spirits. And, you know, the, the way that the term ruach is used in, in one context is so diverse to our ears. But if you, if you then question it and say, okay, what if when they use ruach, they, they weren't making the kinds of distinctions that we were, how, how might that change the way we think about this word? So yeah, um, I, I think just I found curious. it. I, oh, you did. Yeah. Okay. What, what was it? So over the course of these several verses, God instructs Ezekiel to prophesy by means of a ruach to a ruach concerning a ruach, which comes from the four ruchot. Yeah, exactly. Um, so if we set aside for the moment, the kinds of fine distinctions that we might want to make as interpreters, what happens, do you think, when you see this term in a more unified sense? Like, what, what does that change in terms of uh, specifically anthropology? Yeah. So interpreters before me, particularly those of a Pentecostal bent, who are looking for spirit phenomena in the Old Testament, they'll make a similar argument and say, hey, I know you think that this means breath here or wind, but actually maybe it could mean spirit. And so often the move that is made is to take a text that does not seem pneumatological, if you will, and, and make it pneumatological. And I think I definitely make those kinds of moves in, in, in the book. I also want to suggest that the texts that are unambiguously pneumatological might actually also be anthropological in, 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 and, and so kind of de-spiritualize them, I guess, in, a, in, in some sense. And, and so I, I get into talking about ruach as potentially um, a part of the body, an organ, just like, you know, the, how the Bible describes your, your heart or your mind or, you know, different body parts. Often, as you know, Hebrew communicates emotion using body part words, like narrating what a body part word does. And, and so some of these descriptions of a ruach might, might be less spiritual than we expect or, or less, you know, pneumatological than, than we expect them to be because it's, it's simply a part of, part of being a person is having this, this operating, animating ruach within you. Yeah. And as you point out in the book, you know, even our terms for talking about this subject are strained because we, we even say like, anthropological versus spiritual or something like that. And, and of course, these distinctions are artificial, as you point out in the book. Um, but, but getting back to the idea of ruach as, a, as an organ, I thought that was fascinating. You, you say on page 68 that um, one, one of the distinguishing features of ruach is its capacity for movement. And thus, and here's where the quote is, it's the only organ that can also exist most readily external to the body. It's breathed in and out and shared with others around oneself. Remarkably, it is a substance that can even be shared with God. So, so to think about humans sharing an organ with God is, is probably not our operating assumption when we come to the Bible. So um, what are some other ways that, that your study might challenge modern assumptions about the nature of the self? Yeah, thanks for reading, thanks for reading that quote. I think it uh, it demonstrates one of the uh, ideas that I come back to several times in the book, which is um, a notion that I get from um, the the philosopher Charles Taylor, uh, which he calls the 
the permeability of, of the self. Uh, and he makes this distinction between the buffered self and, and suggests that the, the, the modern conception of the, or modern Western conceptions of the self are much more buffered and protected. We have this ability to invite or reject what comes into our bodies. And, and this is that, that ability is, is in fact valorized in some way, you know, um, what, what, what better thing can you say about someone than that, than they are self-possessed, you know, and, and it's wrapped up in notions of masculinity, of rationalism, and, and all this all this other stuff that comes along with it. And part of what I suggest in the book is that not only do a lot of biblical texts not share that view of the self, they also don't believe that it's possible. Just like you can't uh, prevent yourself from, you know, smelling someone's fart, to put it uh, crassly, you know, uh, we, we, we don't have that power of invitation, uh, with, with our bodies. We, we, we live in permeable bodies where spirits, breath, wind affect us, whether we like it or not. And so the question is, is less about, um, building up a barrier between ourselves and the outside world, but, um, you know, uh, asking for divine protection from the wrong kind of incursions and perhaps, uh, cultivating the right kinds of incursions. Mm. Yeah. And so we see that effort at cultivation, would you say like it kind of really takes off in the second temple period, that real attentiveness to the cultivation of the right kind of spirit in oneself? I think that is probably the case. I tend to steer clear of chronological arguments in, in, in the book in general. I take a much more synthesizing approach and um, even like a history of consequences approach, looking at how certain texts were read or could have been read. But particularly when you look at unam- uh, like, you know, cer- texts that are certainly datable to the Second Temple period, like the Dead Sea Scrolls, for instance, there does seem to be new energy behind this, whether it gets started then or, uh, or, 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 or what, th- th- there does seem to be a, a kind of circling of the wagons around these ideas and some innovation around them. Um, I, I wonder if we could take a specific story um, the, of spirit possession that you discuss, uh, and that's Saul in the, the medium of Endor. And um, I, I thought that was a, an, an interesting study. So I'm wondering if you could just take that as a case study and talk about what you noticed, both by looking at kind of anthropological studies and then going back to the text. Sure. Yeah, this was this was a really interesting example. And it's one that I think shows the potential of the anthropological approach because it's a story where uh, Ruach does not occur. And so it's one that previous scholars have often looked over, uh, presumably because they're looking for that key term. But I think this is certainly um, maybe one of the strongest examples of what later people call spirit possession in in the Hebrew Bible. Um, the the sources that I looked to, uh, so each each chapter begins with like a little vignette, which is intentionally drawn from outside of biblical studies. And in in this chapter where I talk about Saul and the medium, I look at an example from um, Espiritismo in, in in Cuba, which is like a modern form of um, cardicism or, or spiritism, and and. Um, an ethnographer writes about her experiences meeting with a medium who is who um, regularly provides advice and is kind of like a neighborhood source for healing, for insight, um, 
And in um, in this medium um, in Havana, she consults uh, a dead, um, not a dead ancestor, but a uh, someone who who died several hundred years ago, who gives her special insight, and the presentation of her and her work, uh, I thought was an interesting juxtaposition with the medium in this story and how she could be functioning with uh, with regard to Saul. Saul has tried and tried and tried to get an answer from God about uh, what's what's what should be done about this Philistine situation, but. But God does not uh, does not answer through the approved methods, not through dreams, not through the uh, the the Urim and the Thummim, and, and not through prophets. And so Saul does the next best thing. He's, he he says, I'll, "I'll go consult a prophet." That's allowed. It's just that the prophet is you know dead. But it's <laughs> but so it's kind of like a gray area. And so, uh, but there's the problem that that Saul has uh, kicked all of the mediums. Um, and it is a medium, by the way, um, not a witch, as it's often translated here. It, 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 it is a medium. Uh, so he goes to consult uh, someone. Apparently, they're not easy to find, even though he has kicked them all out. And um, often this story, it is presented as if there is a visual apparition of Samuel. Um, this is often how it's portrayed in art, for instance. It's like a hologram. Yeah, yeah. It's like, the- yeah. And... And there are maybe some ancient sources that that suggest this, but but uh, um, looking at the Hebrew, it seems to me, especially in light of the ethnographic literature, that the medium is hosting Samuel within her body. And so when the narrative uh, delivers Samuel's lines, it's her voice that's speaking. Um, and they are masculine verbs, but again, it's, it's from the perspective of the narrative, it really is Samuel, you know, it's not a trick. It's not, you know, anything like that. And, 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 um, and what the, the Oracle that Samuel delivers is basically just repetition of what he said before. And, and so she is, um, despite her being kind of denigrated in later tradition, she's doing exactly what she's been paid to do. She's a professional, uh, doing her job of, of, consulting this dead prophet for the sake of her client. Yeah. And you, you point out that although there is visual language there, it's Saul asking her what she sees instead of Saul saying, Oh, Hey Samuel, um, funny seeing you here. Yeah. Yeah. He doesn't recognize Samuel until she gives a visual description of uh, like the cloak and, and so on, which of course is a significant object in their, in their history. So is the idea that, okay, so she's hosting Samuel in her body. Is she also, do you think, seeing something visually, like external to herself or, or what? Yeah, this is, this is uh, I'm, I guess I'm not sure. It does, I mean, she does have, there are, as I recall, you know, verbs of seeing. It does see like, seem like she's seeing something. Is she staring off into space, you know, and seeing something? I don't know, is she looking into the fire or something like that? Uh, you know, some, some ritual act seems to be, uh, at work here, but the, but the text doesn't give us a lot of detail on it. Um, probably because, and we should mention that from the perspective of the text, this is, this is not good what Saul is doing. So they, they maybe don't want to elaborate on, on what she's doing, but yeah. All right. I want to, I want to just switch gears for a moment here, do a speed round and just kind of quick fire questions. So What's the most significant book in biblical studies in the last 50 years? <laughs> the last 50 years? 
Yeah. Oh, man. So I guess it's going back to 72. Yeah. Um, uh, let me give you two in the last five years. <laughs> okay. Sure. Um, for people of, um, for, for, your, uh, for your listeners who are Christians and uh, regularly worshiping in a place of faith, I, I, I really recommend, uh, I have it here on my desk, Will Gaffney's Women's Lectionary. Um, I just finished reading Year W. And it is um, a lectionary of texts that forefront women and women's issues. And Will Gaffney uh, employs a lot of womanist perspectives in her scholarship, and it's just fantastic. She does new translations and uh, preaching prompts and stuff. And I think I think this will be a particularly. It, it's rare that such a practical tool gets produced by um, biblical scholars. Uh, normally we prioritize creating impractical tools. So, so this is something that I think is really excellent. And then um, I think, I think another important book, which uh, I haven't finished yet, I'm slowly working through is um, Bernd Yanovsky's um, Anthropology Does Alton Testaments, which is, uh, I consulted uh, the, you know, the places where he talked about Ruach for this book, but I think similar to Wolf, Wolf's, work from from the 70s i think this will be an important book for a long for a long time um uh, for uh thinking about how does the bible think about what it means to be a person and a human being and embodied great well those are good recommendations um what's the last book which after having read it you threw across the room <laughs> um so recently Recently, there was, um, I saw this thing ab about the biggest Kickstarter ever, and it was a fantasy author named uh, Brandon Sanderson. I don't know if you heard of this, or maybe some of your listeners will know. And so I, I like to read uh, fantasy books, and but I'd never read this guy before. And I read one of his books, and I won't say that I threw it across the room, but I was, uh, I guess... I, I guess I was disappointed uh, in it, and and um, yeah, but I I'm not setting myself up as a kind of critic. <laughs> this is this is this is the kind of literature I read when I don't want to think too hard about things. But but I was dis I was disappointed by it, uh, and and probably he writes excellent work, and maybe I just picked the wrong book. But uh, but that was one that that kind of disappointed me, and I was like, you know, he's he's a big name, so I guess I would should try it out. Yeah. All right. We'll we'll let listeners judge for themselves. Yeah. Um, so do you have a hidden talent? You know, in um in high school I was really really good at uh dance dance revolution. Yeah. Hmm. yeah I, I unpack that. I'm not even familiar. So that is um, a video game that you play on pads. Oh. And okay. uh it started in arcades and uh and um you know you uh you I think I've like seen it, it plays music and you, you slam it. your feet on the ground. And, uh, and I, I, I'm not embarrassed. I mean, I'm not ashamed to kind of brag about that because I don't think very many people would, would, you know, that, that, that's not something that will probably help your listeners think highly of me. And so I don't, I don't get to do it as much anymore, but if, if, if I ever walk by an arcade, I might, I might go in and try it out. But. I think you ought to, and don't, don't leave that part of yourself too far, too <laughs> far in true. the past. And have you, did you ever win like a dance dance revolution competition? You know, my, uh, my friends and I, we would organize like tournaments and stuff like that. Uh, but just, just, just between ourselves. 
Uh, and so beyond, uh, beyond those settings, I, I can't say that I ever went pro. Maybe I could have, maybe I could have, but yeah. yeah. Um, so I was, uh, I was like a good joke on this podcast and this is one I just wanted to share with you. So it's not really a question. Um, so this couple is having a dispute and the one says to the other, okay, that's it. I'm leaving you. You're so childish. And the other person says, well, good luck with that because the floor is lava. <laughs> All right. Um, here's, a, here's another one. What do you get when you cross a bunny with a Rottweiler? Hmm. I don't know. Just a Rottweiler. <laughs> okay. Um, in, so you're, you're teaching at the Lutheran Seminary and um, also United Lutheran Seminary and also... I assume you do teaching in the church on occasion. I think I remember that from Germany. At least you were doing it then. Um, what's your favorite class segment to teach? Like the one you just get most excited, like, ah, I'm so excited about this class. Yeah. Uh, so one of, my, one of my favorite lectures is on the idea of election and, and, and God's choosing. And it it, I assign a portion of Joel Kaminsky's book on this on this topic, and and um, it's one that it just it students just get engaged. Uh, the idea of of does God pick favorites, and and it's an idea that is um, I think simultaneously so cerebral and theological or or or, or whatever, but it's also deeply personal because. Uh, maybe they were the the favorite sibling, or maybe they weren't the favorite sibling. Maybe you know they think about their all the family dynamics or dynamics they have at work or something like that. And and um, when you read the Bible, in in my reading, unambiguously God chooses chooses favorites. You know, in both the Old and the New Testaments, and and so it's something we can't escape. But but it's often makes modern so uncomfortable. Yeah, oh, that's a that's a good good topic to dig into. And how does, how is Kaminsky helpful? So he, he, he talks about different types of, of election. He has uh, three different categories in that book. And, um, and then uh, he has other, um, he's done, he's done some work on it since. And one of the things that are, that's really helpful with it, I think that he does is, is identify uh, the ways in which uh, actually it's, it's not so great to be chosen by God, actually to be elect. Uh, I, I think we often think like when people think of this topic, it's like, oh, the ones God picks are, they get all the blessings and it's great for them. And the one God's, God doesn't pick, they just get damned or destroyed or something like that. And he complicates and nuances the topic a little bit more, suggests that, you know what, maybe it's better just not to be chosen. You know, maybe, <laughs> maybe in the end it's, it's better, it's better not to be chosen. And, and this, this most recent time that I talked about it, I brought in some of um, theologian Willie Jennings work on, on, um, Christians and our relationship to the chosen. He has this chapter in, in um, his book, Christian Imagination. Uh, I think it's called Those Near to Belonging and, and his kind of understanding of Christian identity as, as being someone who is adjacent to the, the chosen one, not, not the chosen one ourselves, but people who, are, who benefit from what God is doing through, uh, through the chosen. And, and it's a really... Uh, it, it's been great. It's been great this semester to talk about that with students. Yeah, it reminds me of, uh, you know, the privilege, quote unquote, of being chosen as a prophet. 
you know, it's, it's, you know, there's an analogy, I guess, in that of, you know, it's not, not a great thing to be chosen as a prophet. Yeah. Yeah. Jeremiah, Jeremiah is great to read on that topic. Yeah. Or, or to be chosen uh, as a, as a minister <laughs> sometimes, <Yeah>. you know, <laughs> yeah. You're speaking from experience. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I have, um, I've never been the senior leader in a church. I, I, you know, as I said, pastor's kid, my, my wife was a senior pastor for a number of years. And so I, and I've worked in churches, but never as the number one. And, and I got, I, I quite like that because I see, I see what happens to the person in charge and it's not something I'm eager for uh, myself, at least not right now. Yeah. Um, you're mentioning uh, Kaminsky's work, Joel Kaminsky's work on election. And um, so I know he has the categories of, of the elect, anti-elect and the non-elect, I think it is. Um, and and uh, I don't know if you've seen Rachel Billings. Uh, the pro-elect. On, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I thought that was a helpful addition. Yeah. I think it's great. I think it's great. And it works really well with uh, what Jennings is doing. I don't think he doesn't uh, reference it, but I, but they, they go together really well. Yeah. That's great. Um, okay. So sorry, we're still in the speed round. We got sidetracked. <laughs> uh, what happened? Um, what's one idea in biblical studies that you think needs to die? Uh, you know, it's one that I talk about a little bit in the book. Uh, I think, I think the idea that uh, this is something that, uh, that I think a lot of people are guilty of, is that uh, God in the Old Testament is mean and angry and vindictive, and and God in the New Testament is kind and merciful and 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 loving, uh, and this is an idea that we find not just among Christian interpreters. I, I think we often find it among we might say formerly Christian interpreters or recovering Christian interpreters, um, and uh, you know the, the 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 Old Testament God is often a punchline. And even with 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 comedians and and um, the problem with this idea, aside from it being inaccurate, which you can just do a Google search and find, there's lots of good information about that. Lots of bad information, I guess, on the internet too. But um, not only is it inaccurate, but um, it's often phrased like this: the Old Testament God is a problem that the New Testament God fixes. And and throughout history, that has so so swiftly become um, Jews are a problem that Christianity fixes and. And obviously, the the uh, results of that have been tragic. Yeah, is there a, a resource on that that you find really helpful in overcoming that sharp dichotomy? You know, in um, in my classes, I use a couple handouts that have been prepared by uh, by uh, some friends, uh, some friends who who are uh, who are Jews teaching in Christian contexts, and. And I think there is some great work that's published out there. Um, and I've seen there's like bibliographies on the handbook, but, but uh, this is, a, uh, or, uh, uh, there's, there's a bibliography on, on the handout. But I find, especially for students that are not necessarily, you know, Bible specialists, uh, just a, a quick three or four page handout with some options for extra reading works pretty well, laying up scripture side by side and, and so on. And also um, the one that I use uh he talks about his personal experience, um, and um, and and I think I find that to be effective too. Okay, so if you pick one band to listen to, which is it going to be? Uh, well, I am. Um, I was born in the '80s, and I'm from the Upper Midwest, so it's going to have to be Bon Iver. Okay, probably. All right. Um, all right. Back to the book. Um, 
you you talk about um, a a non charismatic experience of the spirit, and you've already touched on the idea of sort of despiritualizing texts or or not kind of assuming that because Ruach is mentioned, we're we're talking about some hyper spiritual reality. So, what is a non charismatic experience of the spirit? Yeah, that's such a great a great question and such a pertinent one. I think for people that are interested in you know the Holy Spirit. Uh, but aren't necessarily ready to go up for that altar call, (laughs) you know. Um, I think some of this gets modeled in uh, in places where we can find it, perhaps in biblical literature. Uh, There are often um, places where the spirit gets connected to wisdom. You know, in narrative settings, we find references to that in the Joseph story. But in in, um, Second Temple literature, this notion of wisdom... um, you know, uh, like like hochma and ruach uh, come to be not synonymous, but conflated in some way or or, or related. Uh, and the idea that special insight comes from from um, from the spirit, also uh, like art or um, you know, uh, being capable of 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 creating. Like the the classic example would be Bezalel and Exodus and and the creation of the of the tabernacle um and those don't seem to me necessarily to be charismatic you know fillings if you will of of the spirit though though they are no less spiritual experiences you know and i know that they've been read as charismatic too uh, but but i think those are good examples in scripture one of the vignettes that i use in the story or in the book uh some examples from gulagichi culture um and this idea of talking to the dead and i believe uh that uh judging by some of the ethnographic work that i read that there are also examples of charismatic experience in in um um, in in galagichi practice but in the particular example i use people talk to the dead uh dead ancestors often close relatives you know parents siblings etc uh but they they do it while they are um sitting on the back porch you know, and it's silence. It's just, if you were to look on the, from the observer, from the outside, it would just be them just sitting there in silence or while they're um, doing something like creating a basket or while they're uh, singing or while they're doing, telling a story. And so when they give an account of talking to the dead, it sounds like it, it had the potential to be something, um, you know, charismatic or, or, or ecstatic, but in, in practice, it's um, calm, meditative kind of practice. Yeah, I think I think with some of those um, practices, our, our assumption might be that someone is in some kind of frenzy. Their eyes are rolling back, their hands are waving around wildly, and then that kind of activity happens. And and so, you, you know, your book is challenging kind of what counts as a spiritual experience as well, um, breaking down some of the sharp divides that might exist in our minds. And it, it's not that stuff like that doesn't happen. In um, contemporary cultures around the world that do practice spirit possession, what, what I found is that often, often um, is that when something like that does happen, it is perceived within the culture as something having gone wrong, that in, it's not being practiced appropriately, uh, that there are uh, better ways to manage or cultivate the spirit. Maybe it's a good spirit that's been brought up, but the relationship between the host and the spirit are not quite 
uh, in sync yet, or or and and so it's something that where where there needs to be correction. What what are, what are some of the ways that your book um, provides insight regarding the phenomenon of uh, demonic possession in the New Testament and and some of its antecedents in the Hebrew Bible? Yeah. So this was this was one where I was aware that there was already a lot of work that has been done on this, uh, really great work. And a lot of it is focused on kind of the mythological origin of demons and spirits. You know, where did this figure come from? Where do we find a portrait like that in, um, you know, in the Dead Sea Scrolls or in, um, you know, Pseudepigrapha or something? And so... Yeah, Genesis 6 and the Fallen Yeah, exactly. Fallen yeah. Ones. yeah, yeah. And, and um, all of that... Uh, I think is great. And I use it um, and cite it. I, I wanted to bracket it, however, and come at it from a different angle, less a mythological one and more of a kind of um, religious experience one. And, um, and so uh, w- one of the ideas I looked at was this kind of motif we find, I think beginning in the Hebrew Bible, but continuing into uh, later Second Temple literature of the problem um, that there's something wrong inside. And this is where that title Unfamiliar Self comes from, is that there is a part of the person that is not functioning properly. And I think actually you had um, Carol Newsom on a, a while ago, and she talked a little bit about this, uh, this, this kind of trajectory. I traced it, I traced it through all the way uh, through several, um, several biblical texts and, and in, all the way into uh, 4Q Barki Nafshi and the kind of really like breakdown, bodily breakdown that, that this text portrays. And it uses a term which, which could be translated as exercise for removing parts, parts of the body, body, you know, and yeah, gaar, yeah. And, and I thought, you know, this is, this is interesting. This is not the, the same kind of, you know, there's, there's forces out there in the world that are struggling to get in. This is, uh, oh, there's something inside of me that I need to get out. Uh, and I saw it as kind of another, maybe more um, experience-focused way of looking at this, of, of where these kinds of ideas could have come from. Yeah, so, so the idea is that someone experiences some kind of interior moral problem that they need to exercise and literally to have driven out. And it's and it's portrayed in spiritual terms because it's called maybe a, uh, a spirit of evil or or something like that. And but it's it's not necessarily attributed to some spiritual demonic figure per se, right? Is that kind of the idea? Yeah, it's still uh, attributed to a part of the body. It's just a part of the body that you don't need anymore. And it's interesting if you look at. Jeremiah or Ezekiel or, or Psalm 51, God is doing a kind of, particularly in Psalm 51, we might say God is doing a kind of uh, organ transplant, you know, taking out or taking out the, the, the heart of stone and putting in the heart of flesh in Ezekiel, uh, or a spirit transplant in Psalm 51. Um, let's get the right and willing spirit in here. But in later texts, particularly when they start talking about the Yetzer, the Yetzer Hara, the, the inclination, it's removed, but no, nothing's put back in. It's just, it's, it's, um, you know, it's like an, an appendix or something. Once it's gone, you don't, you, you don't need it anymore. 
And and so is this is this a jumping off point for thinking about how how there could be a spirit inside, which often people have considered that to be a a, a unique part of the, of the New Testament gospel stories. So in in the Old Testament, you talk about the idea of um, you know in Jeremiah and Ezekiel, Psalm fifty one, needing to be rid of a, a spirit within oneself, or, or you know a wrong spirit, and and have a new spirit put in, you know, the organ transplant, like, as you said. Um, so where's that sort of positive side? I could imagine the correlate, correlation between demonic exorcism and getting rid of the impure spirit. What's the sort of positive correlate in the Gospels as you see it? I think one place where we could see this is in the positive cultivation of God's spirit or a Holy Spirit. Uh, not yet the Holy Spirit, you know, capital H, capital S, but uh, a Holy Spirit from from God, we might say almost as a kind of spirit inoculation. Um, as uh, if you are filled with a good kind of spirit, then there's, you know, talking about the materiality of spirits, there's, there's quite literally no room for any other kinds of spirits. There, there's no space for them in there because you have, you have, um, you know, uh, so so filled yourself, or allowed God, or invited God to, to fill you with something uh, that 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 makes you immune um, to to other kinds of spirits. Um, Giovanni Bazzana argues in um, in a book that he wrote on spirit possession that that this is uh, he he takes kind of a historical Jesus approach, and he argues that this is what Jesus was doing was passing on a, a, a positive cultivated spirit possession to to different to different people and that this was what Paul took up and was spreading across the Mediterranean what was was being filled with the spirit of Christ or being in Christ. Hmm. Um we're we're running short of time but I I'd love for you to talk about the medicinal kind of aspects of the spirit. Uh, you had a, a quite a large section on that and you you say on page 139 or you ask a question on page 139 so I thought I'd pose that question to you uh, what has been lost when when we separate essentially the the medicine, the medicinal world from the spiritual world and, and relegate them to different spheres. Like how, how does that cause us maybe to misread the Bible or what are we missing out on in terms of contemporary practice? So one of the things that's interesting when you start getting into the ethnographic literature is how prevalent uh, medical imagery and medical ideas are used in spirit possession um, community spirit possession practicing communities around the world often the purpose of a spirit possession is some kind of healing and uh i think an older approach that people had looking at that was to say oh look how primitive they are you know and they don't have as much medical knowledge um as as we do but uh, this is something I think that's largely falling away, especially as empirical studies are coming out and saying, actually, some of these methods are, are quite effective, <laughs> you know, uh, for when, when people are suffering from what we would call mental illness or, 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 or something, you know, some of these quote unquote folk methods can sometimes be effective for people from within that culture that have been socialized in a, in a particular way to, to understand their, their own bodies in a particular way. And so I think that. That division, those hard lines that we draw between, say, mental health or physical health, or the way we can say, you know, is this 
is this a spirit or is this a mental health problem is, is, is really not something that would have made a lot of sense to an ancient. The, the answer is, of course, it's both, you know, Saul is a great example of that, but, but there are, there are other examples as well that those divisions that, that we can impose. Yeah. Especially I would imagine if you see the spirit as an organ, um, asking, asking, you know, is this a physical or spiritual phenomenon is, is a, the non-question, or that question doesn't make sense. What What are some of the the theological or practical implications of your study in as you've thought about ministry and and church contexts? Yeah. Well, one of the one of the ways I've challenged my own church, uh, the Episcopal Church, or um, I teach in a Lutheran seminary, and so um, you know, progressive churches. Uh, one of the ways that I've um, challenged these kinds of traditions. Often we have a lot of rhetoric around inclusion and we have a lot of, uh, you know, intentional efforts to, to, um, to invite, uh, you know, various types of diversity into our communities. And, uh, I've tried to, uh, show people that aversion to this kind of, you know, spiritual stuff often creates barriers for people of color to to come into your community like you say like you say that you want and uh th- these are of course generalizations um about you know uh people of faith but this is something uh that this is something that i've i've seen uh th- that i've seen and and so uh particularly for people who are already christians maybe immigrants who come from the global south where spirit possession type practices are much more prevalent. Often the question has been phrased by Western interpreters, what is it about these people that makes them believe in this, in this kind of thing? What is it? And, and that's kind of the, the, the way the question is phrased. There's something up with them. Let's figure that out. And part of the challenge of the research, with which anthrop- uh, anthropologists have been suggesting for decades, just took biblical scholars a while to get there, is to kind of flip it around and say, actually, this, these kinds of beliefs are quite prevalent and have been in human history for a long time. It's really post-Enlightenment, modern, Western, European intellectual tradition that is the odd one out. So maybe we should be asking, what is it about us that is so resistant to um, experiencing the world in this way or understanding our own embodiment in the world in this way? Reed, that's a great place to land. And I want to thank you so much for taking the time to speak about your book, Unfamiliar Selves in the Hebrew Bible. And uh, thanks for this great conversation. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure being here. You have been listening to OnScript, delectable conversations on scripture and theology. If this episode has brought you inner peace or lit your biblical fire, please consider a small donation of just 2 or $5 per month. Information on how to donate can be found at onscript.study slash donate.